into the Arlington Baptist Podcast. So glad that you're joining me again. And I am going to continue the ongoing series on the book of Revelation. So hope you have your Bible handy and you can turn to chapter 3. I'm going to finish today the uh, letter to the seven churches that Jesus gave in chapters 2 and 3. And remember, as we introduced the book a number of weeks ago to start this verse-by-verse study, we told you that primarily verses, or chapters, pardon me, chapters 1 through 3 are, uh, are more in the present, uh, and then from chapter 4 on will really be a big change in this book as we look to the future. And so we've been looking at these seven churches. We've covered six of the seven already. We come to the last one today. Uh, known as the church at Laodicea. It is interesting to add, maybe I haven't said this yet, but how churches uh, were known by their location. Uh, We know the churches didn't have titles like we have today. You know, I'm a Baptist. I believe in Baptist history, some Baptist historical uh, things that are important. Uh, but we know the early church didn't have a sign out front. In fact, they didn't have a building. They didn't meet in in uh, buildings like we do today. And uh, they didn't have a name for their church. And so even when Jesus writes back uh, to these seven churches, he just calls it the church at or of. The church of Laodicea. The church of Philadelphia, of Sardis, all these others. And and so location was important. And I might add that the reason that's important is the church is, is supposed to be a, a local thing. It's supposed to be in your city. It's supposed to be where you live. You're supposed to be assembling with it. The church, uh, the word church, as you know, uh, and I went through a series a while back on our podcast on ecclesiology, and hopefully you've had a chance to, to listen to those. If you haven't, I would uh, really uh, advise you, if you would, to go back and listen to those. Uh, but anyway, we, we got into the word ecclesia, the Greek word from from where we get our word church, translated uh, about 115 times in the New Testament. And it means a called-out assembly. And wherever that group of baptized, saved believers joins together, that's the church. The church isn't the building or the place where they meet. It's the people that meet there. Uh, the location is is just identifying where they are. And so here we are, these seven churches, each identified by the location it was at. And no doubt in these uh, early years of Christianity in the first century, um, there probably was perhaps only one church body in each city. Now, remember, since they didn't meet at one place all the time, couldn't in many times meet at one place, uh, they met no doubt in homes or in public places, wherever they could meet together. Probably a church was made up of several missions or several smaller groups meeting in different places around a city. Uh, but they would come together, at least the leaders would come together. And if the Lord was sending, uh, for instance, this uh, letter to the church at Laodicea, I'm sure that they uh, had a pastor or plurality of uh, pastors, leaders, that would have met together to read this letter to them and, and so forth. So the locality of these churches is important. Remember, all seven of these churches Jesus writes to through the Apostle John are all located in uh, what we call today Turkey, or it was called then Asia Minor. So they weren't very far away, and no doubt once a church got the letter that was sent to them, 
before even maybe the, the entire book of Revelation may have been all penned. We're not sure exactly how that all came together, but it's likely that perhaps the church could have gotten that letter to their, to their own church and then had copies written and given, uh, circulated around the other churches. And of course, just like all the Word of God was uh, inspired originally by the human author that God used to write it down, uh, then it would have been copied, the autographs would have been copied into manuscripts, and they would have circulated, and so on. Well, let's get into now and, and look at this last church, and we're going to also uh, refer to the historical aspect of how this last church pictures what I believe, and I'm going to spend some time at the very end talking about this, I believe the church at Laodicea sadly and tragically pictures this last church a period of time that we're in now. I think we're living in the last days. I did a series on eschatology, or we call it uh, understanding the end. You can go back and listen to that as we did it just before this series uh, to kind of lead into this. This is what kind of gave me the, the desire to get into an, a study of the book of Revelation is just going through that entire study of, of end times prophecy. Uh, but anyway, with that in mind, uh, the Church of Laodicea, I think, pictures the last period of church history. Now, I'm not trying to put a date on when Jesus is going to come. No one should do that. The Bible forbids that. Uh, but we can know and should know the signs of the times. Jesus told us those signs. They're found beautifully in Matthew 24. The Probably the most important single chapter on prophecy in all the Bible is Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus was answering the question of the disciples, when shall be the sign of thy coming into the end of the world or into the age? And so um, those signs show us, I believe, that we are living in the last days. Uh, and with that in mind, if we make anything out of these seven churches picturing seven periods in church history, and I do believe there's some uh, reason to, to, to follow that idea, we're not saying it's the main interpretation. We're saying it's an application. It's a at least something you can take from the text. Uh, I think we're living in that Laodicean period. And now as I read it, I'm going to go back through it and show you why that is. Let me do what I've done with all the six previous churches. Let's just read the whole text uh, as the Lord was speaking to this church at Laodicea. In chapter 3 of Revelation, beginning in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in at him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. 
All right, well, let's go back and talk about this uh, letter, uh, this message to the church at Laodicea, again, to the angel of that church, which would be the pastor, uh, the main messenger. Uh, And it starts out very similar to all the other six previous churches. The Lord starts out addressing the, the messenger, the angel, and then says something about himself. He says, these things saith the amen. All oh, that word amen. It's found all through the Bible. We've commonly used it now as kind of the ending of our prayers. It really just means uh, so be it. Uh, it means uh, let it be done. It's like a if, if Jesus is called the amen, he is the reason for everything. He is the reason everything shall be done and shall come to pass as God has written. He's the finality. Amen's kind of the final word in a statement. It's always found at the end, usually, of a, an important statement or, or a, a prayer or something like that. And here Jesus is called the amen because he is the final, uh, the climax of everything. He's the one that makes everything come to pass. So be it, the Lord says. And, uh, and he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Wow, that's great. He is faithful and true. Boy, that sums up the life of our Lord, his whole existence, his whole, his whole uh, personality, everything about his work, who he is. He's God. He's faithful and true to us. And it calls him here, he refers to himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, let's not be confused by that. It does not mean that Jesus uh, is the first thing God created because Jesus is God. It simply means that he is before everything else. Let me go back and and show you the beauty of John chapter 1. You know, the Gospel of John was written to prove the deity of Christ. It's a tremendous uh, record of Christ's deity. And here's how it starts. (coughs) In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And notice you have the beginning there with God. Then it says, all things were made by Him. By who? By Jesus Christ. The same is the Word. And without him was not anything made that was made. You see, Jesus is the creator. He's not like the beginning of the creation as if he started the creative work of God. He is God. He came before all things. He's the, he's the beginning of the creation of God because that means he's part of. He's, he's one and the same with the Father and the Spirit. In, in Colossians chapter 1, maybe it'd be good for me to refer to that great passage as well while I'm at it, it says of him, uh, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. That's Christ. That's speaking of him. It's all about the who there, who is Christ. And he's before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church. We know that's Jesus Christ. So these statements can be easily verified with cross-referencing other verses. So here's how he starts to talk about himself. Now he goes on with that very familiar phrase that's been given to all of the seven churches, and he ends it here with this church at Laodicea. I know thy works. Boy, he he wants us all to get that. No matter what church you you read in these uh, two chapters, he says that the same to everyone. I know thy works. We better be sure that we understand this truth. It should really grip our hearts. God knows my work. He knows your work. He knows your church's work. He knows my church's work. He's speaking uh, to a church body here, but of course it refers to individuals in the church as well. But he knows his churches, and he knows what all churches are doing, even those that 
claim to be churches and are not. He's aware of them. And so he says to this church, I know thy works. But then he's going to be very harsh on this church. You know, I told you there were two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that he is only commending and, and only, only uh, um, applauding, if you will, saying great things about and commending. But here, uh, it's really only criticism. Uh, he has some very serious uh, rebukes to give to this church. And it starts right here. He says that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, it's basically, they're, they're kind of like, and again, I'm already going to have to get into how I think modern Christianity has become, uh, especially in American Western Christianity. Uh, we're, we're just lukewarm. He says, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee. I'll spit thee out of my mouth. Now, we all know this. This is a common uh, everyday uh, truth. Uh, if you drink something that's supposed to be hot, you want it to be hot. If you drink something that's supposed to be cold, you want it to be cold. There's nothing better than after working outside, and I do a lot of work in the hot Texas sun in, in the summer uh, in my own home, and we work out here at our church a lot. There's nothing better than getting a, a cold ice water, a cold bottle of water out of the fridge, and, and, and you want it cold. I don't want to drink it lukewarm. Uh, if I want a hot cup of coffee on a cold day, uh, you know, I want a hot cup of coffee, right? But nobody has much use for lukewarm things, and the Lord doesn't either. And he's talking about their spiritual state. Um, you know, if they were hot, that would mean they were on fire, basically. That's a picture of them really being zealous. At least if they were cold, they would show that they're, they're not even uh, saved at all. They're not, they're not even, uh, they don't have any uh, zeal for the Lord. Uh, it, it's like at least they would be true to their uh, to what they really are. I've often said that uh, I kind of have more respect sometimes for an, a downright atheist than I do a professing Christian that that doesn't live for God, who's a name only Christian. At least that professing atheist is is living what he claims. He claims to hate God, doesn't believe God even exists, and and at least he's living that. People that say they're saved and say they're Christians that don't even live the Christian life, uh, they're really an atrocity. They're an abomination. And the Lord's very harsh on them, as you're going to see in this passage to the Laodicean church. I'm not saying there wasn't any believers in the church at Laodicea. I believe there were. We'll see at least a reference to that a little bit later. But his words are so harsh to this church that you have to wonder if uh, the majority, probably the overwhelming majority, uh, were name-only Christians. And I think there's churches like that today. I think there may be whole denominations, at least that claim to be following Christ, claim to be in the Christian fold, but have rejected God and his word and are apostate, uh, are, are rejectors of the truth, have denied the truth. Uh, and so he says to this, this uh, church, I spew thee out of my mouth. Uh, he, it's like throwing up how atrocious that is, how graphic and, and just... Uh, pungent that is. I mean, it's just, uh, that's what he says about them. You're, 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 you're so, uh, uh, what's the word I'm, I'm thinking of? You're so repugnant to me that I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. This is how, how much the Lord uh, can't stand those who, who, who are hypocrites, really. Remember how hard he was on the Pharisees and Sadducees in the Gospels? Matthew 23, you can read the first part of that chapter, really whole chapter, actually, he's very harsh because these are these hypocrites, people who say one thing and do another. And he was mad about this church being like that. He, he says, I know thy works. Uh, 
uh, you're, you're neither cold nor hot. And, and then notice as he goes on, uh, he just continues this tirade. It's, a, it's a, the, the harshest he is on any of the seven churches right here. He says, because thou sayest, boy, this, you got to stop and talk about people who say, you know, people are big talkers. You ever hear people that talk a lot about how much they say they love the Lord? And I'm always weary. I may have said this in another podcast, but I'll say it again. I'm always weary of people that, that uh, come to church or visit our church and, and boy, they talk a big game. They'll tell you about all they've done. Boy, I'm coming. I'll be there next Sunday. And I've had so many of them say that kind of stuff. You never see them again. Uh, people that claim they've all they've done all this for the Lord. They used to teach a class. They used to win souls. They did this. They had they were involved in church here, and and you know they've read the Bible and they memorized Scripture. And God's not is concerned about what you did in the past. What are you doing for Him now? That's what He cares most about. He says about the church because thou sayest. Uh, remember when James says, uh, "What does a prophet of man say? He has faith and have not works. Can faith save save him?" Uh, James is talking about talkers the same way as John is here as the Lord uh, has him record these words from Christ. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Look at what they said. Oh, I'm rich. They, they thought they were really something. I'm increased with goods and have need of nothing. Isn't that telling that this Laodicean church and this city, from what I'm told historically, was a rather wealthy Roman city in Asia Minor. And there were people that were in that church that probably were wealthy. It's talking about outward wealth, no doubt, materialistic wealth. And they equated that with spirituality. Isn't that a, isn't that a, a common occurrence today? Isn't that a, a great mistake that's being made in much of Christianity? There's, there's a movement within Christianity, and, and they're not all my enemies, and I'm not going to say that everybody's in this camp that may even claim to believe this, but let me just make a general statement. I hope you'll accept it. I'm saying that there's this prosperity pie-in-the-sky uh, Christianity today that, that thinks that, that as long as you have wealth and health and, and prosperity as the world judges that, then you must be right with God. You must be doing right. God must be with you, and you must have God on your side. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, many of the greatest Christians in history were the poorest, the most persecuted, the, the most sickly, the most uh, uh, outcast. And, and so here's this church at Laodicea saying, you know, I'm rich. I have increased with goods. I don't need anything. I'm fine. Wow. You get somebody to the point. That's, that's pride, isn't it? That's complacency. That's apathy. That's arrogance. Oh, I don't need anything. I'm fine. How many people you talk to? It's kind of a common line I hear from unsaved people that I try to witness to. Oh, I'm good. I don't need anything. I'm fine. Uh, that's how this church acted. But let us tell the truth now. Let the Lord uh, give us the truth about this. He says in the end of verse 17, and know us not. In other words, they didn't know this is their real condition. What they thought they were was not what they really were. He, Jesus says, I know what you are. And you know us not that thou art wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Wow. Everything that's the total opposite of what they thought they were, rich and Increased with goods and have need of nothing. Well, I'm telling you what, all those people that he mentioned and those characteristics are people that are in great need, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. You can't get any worse than that. Isn't this a, a, a terrible self-deception? And you know, we can, we can all be guilty of this individually. We have to be very careful. 
Remember when James wrote, I'm always moved by this verse where James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then the last statement, deceiving your own selves. There's a lot of people that know the Bible, they know truth, they've been exposed to Christianity, they may go to church, they may go through some routines, but they're really not living it. It's not in their heart. They're really not moved by it. They're kind of like this church at Laodicea. Oh, I'm fine. I'm doing great. I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. You know, God's blessing me. People confuse the blessings of God with just the mercy of God many times. You know, the Bible says God sends his rain on the just and the unjust. You know, the unjust can get some rain too. And it doesn't mean just because you have things that God's necessarily blessing your life. He may be testing you with those things to see what you'll do with them. And he says to this church, you don't even know it, but you're, you're in terrible condition. Uh, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Now, this leads into what I want to say about the fact that I think most of the people in this church at Laodicea were not saved. Uh, because of the descriptions he gives. I mean, would you say that about a Christian? Uh, just listen to the description of those words again. Thou art, not you, not I think you are. Jesus, I know who you are. And you don't know it, but I'm telling you who you are. Would this describe a Christian wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked? Um, no, I think it's describing someone who's lost. Those are the same words that we, we see often referred to with, with people that are lost before they come to Christ. And then that's why verse 18 is, is written the way it is. This is what Jesus says to them. I counsel thee to buy of me. Now, this sounds strange to us because, you know, we think of buying something as a transaction and you pay for it. Well, he's not using it in that way. He's saying... Uh, obtain from me these things that will make you rich, that will give you clothing, he's going to talk about white raiment, that will uh, take away your shame, that will open your eyes. Uh, and all these have to do with salvation. Now, why would he refer to it as to buy of me gold? He didn't say just get from me gold or take from me gold. He says buy of me. Uh, gold tried in the fire. Well, uh, there's several ways to look at this. Commentators, you know, the, like I told you, the book of Revelation has some difficult uh, parts, and not not all commentators are agreed on these. Some don't uh, say anything about some of these difficult statements or verses because they're not sure either. But I have to believe that it has something to do with the cost that we have to pay to be saved. You say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought salvation's free. Well, it's free because Jesus paid for it, but it's not free in the sense when we come to Christ, there's a cost. You remember when Jesus said back in Luke 14, he talked about whosoever is not willing to, to uh, forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on and says, and, and who uh, uh, doesn't count the cost to see whether they can win a battle before they go into that battle? And that passage, I'm not going to take time to read it all because I'll get off our passage here too, too much and I might be tempted to, to interpret too much of that passage. But I'm just going to say that if you read it, it's in uh, Luke 14 beginning around verse 25 or 26 through the end of the chapter. He's referring to salvation and it, it does cost something. Now, it's not impossible to understand. It's not hard to understand the gospel. But I've always taught and, and shared with people that even though the gospel is not hard to understand, it, it's hard to accept because you've got to repent. You've got to put away your own desires. You've got to die to yourself. 
in a sense, that's what repentance is. You're, you're saying, Lord, I'm turning away from my dreams, my life, what I've done, the sinful ways I've lived in, the false beliefs I've held, and I'm turning to you. And so there is a cost. So I think this idea of buying of me gold may indeed have this idea that there's a cost involved. Now, Jesus paid for all our sins. We're not talking about paying for your sins. We're talking about simply what it takes to turn to Christ. Uh, Jesus said, oh, I got to get to this passage. I just, since I'm on this, this is great. It's in Luke as well. But listen to how Jesus worded this uh, in Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. He talks about the kingdom of God being preached, and John preached the kingdom of God. And, but then he uses this phrase that everyone that comes to it presses into it. Uh, and then he says almost the same, same idea in a different wording, and it's even more graphic. In Matthew eleven twelve. he says, and you know it sounds very much like Luke 16, 16, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Wow, what in the world could he mean? Well, this pressing in and taking it by force has to relate to this idea of what I've just said. It has to do with repentance. It has to do with the, with the fact that we must press through like a turnstile in a stadium where only one person can go through at a time, and you, you go through this skinny turnstile to get in. You can't bring anything with you, no baggage. Nobody else can enter with you, just you by yourself. I think that's this buying gold. Now, the gold is like the pearl of great price. That's true. You buy gold, it's tried with fire. That's, that's the gospel. I think that's a picture of salvation. Jesus referred to it as the pearl of great price in Matthew 13. And then, because he goes on and notice the wording, that thou mayest. Now, see, when you have that gold tried in the fire and you got to buy it because there's a cost, then here's what you obtain. You're rich, you'll have white raiment. This is all picturing now salvation that thou mayest be clothed and, and that thy shame of thy nakedness shall not appear. That's all what a Christian is now uh, all about. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When you're saved, you're not only forgiven of your sins, but you're given the perfect righteousness of Christ. You're clothed in his righteousness. We'll see that later when we see the white linen of the saints, which pictures purity from Christ. We're made holy and we're to live holy, Right? And he says, and anoint thine eyes with eyesaph that thou mayest see. Remember how Jesus anointed several people? He, the one man in the Gospels uh, who he goes and takes and spits on the ground and takes up some dirt with his spit and makes a little clay uh, mud uh, with it and puts it on his eyes and tells him to go into the pool of Salome and, and wash off. And he sees. This is the picture of salvation. I was blind, but now I see, as the great amazing grace hymn says. Now, I think verse 19, as I go on, is speaking of Christians that were, were there at that church. I do believe there were some Christians there. To me, it would be, it would be almost um, contradictory, if you will, for the Lord to write to a church that was made up of all unbelievers. I don't think that's the case. I think there were some in that church that were saved. And, and I think he has them in mind here. As many as I love, as many where? Well, at this church. I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. Even these that were saved were being influenced by the majority, I think, that were not saved in this church, that weren't real true Christians. And that is so typical. That is just what happens. 
We often think, well, if, if I'm a Christian, I'll bring other uh, you know, unbelievers to Christ or I'll bring other nominal Christians up to my level. Not usually, I have to tell you. Most of the time, the nominal, weak, or even uh, false converts in a church will bring people down to their level more than we'll bring them up to our level if we're trying to live right. And, and that's what he's saying to this, this group. I love you, but I got to rebuke you. They must have been doing something. I chasten you. That chastening is, is discipline. Be zealous. They had been influenced by this lukewarmness, evidently, because that's what he means by be zealous. Get hot again uh, and repent. Now, I don't think this is referring to anything about repentance to salvation, though we just referred to a group that needed to do that, the false converts, probably those that weren't saved among the membership. But these, he says, turn away. You know, every Christian, we still repent. We repent initially to be saved, but every day we need repentance, don't we? A repentance is a turning away from, an acknowledgement of evil, of sin, of, of failure to God, and, and a desire to change. And so that changing heart we ought to always have. Now, verse 20 is an interesting verse, and it's been misused so often uh, in, 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 uh, in evangelism and so on. And notice, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and, and will sup with him and he with me. Now, uh, you know, you've probably heard this verse used. I'm not going to say that it can't ever be used as a picture of the human heart, but I don't, I don't prefer using it that way. I think it, it, it plays into this false dichotomy, this false uh, teaching that people open their hearts and Jesus comes into your heart. You know, this kind of shallow, easy belief is a message that, you know, just ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. That's not biblically sound theology or, or soteriology either. Uh, and really, that's not what he's talking about. Now, is there a certain sense that a sinner opens themselves up to Christ? Yes, I'm not going to deny that. When you come to Christ, it's like you're giving your life to him. You're opening your life and giving it to him. You're, you're committing your life. So I don't, I'm not saying that can't be used in that way. But the primary interpretation is him standing outside the door of this church, uh, like, like picturing a meeting place, and he wants back in. He's knocking at the door and saying, let me back in because you've, you've kicked me out. Isn't this graphic? How many churches have done that in our day? Uh, churches that have kicked Jesus out. See, when you stop believing his word, stop practicing his word, you're like kicking him out. Remember back in that story in the Old Testament? I've been teaching through the Old Testament to our people on Wednesday nights, and we went through 1 Samuel a while back, and that story of Ichabod. This woman, uh, one of uh, Eli's sons, had a wife, and, and she dies in child labor after the ark is, is stolen by the Philistines. And when she, she dies in childbirth, they name her son Ichabod, or she does, which means the glory of God has departed. What a, what a graphic picture of what this is. You know, the glory of God is Jesus Christ and his presence, his power, his work. And it's departed from many churches. And isn't this sad? I think the Lord's literally knocking on the door of many churches, wanting in. God forbid he'd be knocking at the door of our church. I pray he's not outside. We want him inside. And th But this is what happens. When you get to the, the kind of uh, arrogant spirit, the, the worldly spirit of riches and, and material goods and don't need God's help anymore like we saw in verse 17, the Lord's kicked out of it. He won't stay around. But the beautiful thing is he still wants back in. So that's why I say there had to be some element of, of goodness in this church at one point, and we don't know exactly when that church started. We know it was existing when Paul wrote 
his uh, letter to, to the uh, Colossian church because he says, read this letter uh, to the Laodiceans. And, and he wrote a non-inspired letter to the Laodicean church, Paul did, and he told the Colossians to read that. So this church had been going at least, we would say, somewhere around 30 years or so, maybe more. Um, so at some point, it was made up of believers and probably still had some believers. But now, man, what a tragedy. He's been kicked out. Let me back in. And if you let me in, I'll come in and I'll sup with you. That word sup means to dine, to eat with, to fellowship with. I want to have fellowship. Isn't that a wonderful word, fellowship? The Lord wants to have fellowship with us. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This same writer John says in 1 John 1. Well, I hope the Lord's not outside your church. And, and if He is, we need to open the door. There's some churches that need to open the door, let Christ, let His Word back in, let the truth back in. Get back to standing for his truth. Evidently, because he's standing there means he wants to come and he hasn't totally given up on that church. Thank God. Well, then he ends by saying, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Here he has said this idea of overcoming to every one of the churches. He wants us to be overcomers. And he says, To him that overcometh. That means there was some saved people in there that he wanted to continue to overcome, but he's perhaps even speaking to some that he prays will buy that gold and and, and get saved and be right and overcome. Because uh, he says, I'll grant to sit with me in my throne. Wow. That's again that promise that if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. The godly, the, the dedicated, the devoted Christians, the most soul-like Christians, they're going to be rewarded, friend. I repeat the phrase, it's so important to remember, every true born-again Christian will get to heaven, but not every Christian is going to enjoy heaven the same. You better dedicate your life to Christ. It's only fair and right that God would, would reserve special treatment for those who've been more dedicated to Him. That's what He says. If you'll overcome, and that's a picture of one who's living for Christ, overcoming the world and the flesh, the devil, fulfilling God's will, being fruitful in their life, finding contentment and humility in Christ. He says, I'm going to grant you to be with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. <laughs> He's the ultimate overcomer. Jesus is the one who sat down with my Father in His throne, He says. Oh, I love that. If there's ever one who overcame, it's Christ. They put Him on that cruel Roman cross and beat Him nearly to death before they did so. Uh, the world and all its sin thought He was gone. The devil and his wicked demons thought He was gone. But not so. He overcame. He overcame death. He overcame the grave. He overcame hell and the devil himself. And He wants to give that victory to anybody who will come to Him. That's why I appeal to everyone. Uh, you watch or listen to this podcast. You go to a church. You open your Bible. You hear the Word of God. If you're not saved, friend, come to Christ. Turn to Him. Repent of your sins. Believe on Him and what He did for you. You can overcome this world and have everlasting life. Well, he ends with the same appeal. And he said it to all the churches. Now that he's done with the seven churches, we need to take it in consideration for all of us. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith under the churches. Well, let me end by saying that I have to believe that this seventh and final church is picturing our churches today. We're living in an age so much like it. I don't, I don't need to go back and make a lot of comments. I've made many as we went through this study today. But I'm telling you, um, there are many churches that are like the Laodicean church. That's why this uh, belief that these seven churches may picture seven periods in church history chronologically, one after the other, it does fit. There is some things that fit. I don't think it's coincidence. And I do believe this seventh church, uh, the seventh church at Laodicea here pictures the apostate, 
the the worldly, the the uncommitted, the false converted uh, church of today that so many are part of. There's people, especially in America, I have to tell you that churches uh, have people come to them every Sunday and, and, and other times too and, and uh, go through the motions, go through the religious ritual, the routine, the ceremony, the dogma, but are not saved. And that's a tragedy. And I think that's what the Lord's warning us about. The only uh, light at the end of the tunnel after saying that is that we're going to go into chapter 4 next time. And in chapter 4, everything's going to change. It's really one of the main division points in this book of Revelation. And it comes beautifully at the end of those seven churches. So next time we get together for our, our study of Revelation, I'll show you how that we go from the seven churches into chapter 4 and really the end time events that begin to unfold. Well, remember our motto, conviction for truth and compassion for people. God bless you. Mm-hmm.